As I mentioned earlier, we have been in a series uh, looking at the topic of prayer. And uh, already this morning, we've talked about the prayers of others and the role that they can play in our lives and even in our own prayers. And our text for this morning, the text that we're going to be looking at, is actually one of those prayers. It's the prayer of another. It's one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. It's a prayer for the church. It can serve as a model for our prayers. It can be a prayer that we pray ourselves. Um, but right now, let's hear uh, Paul's prayer for his church. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14 to 19. This can be found in page 1820 of your pew Bibles. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The love of Christ. Paul prays that we will grasp, we will truly understand the love of Christ. Philip Yancey, in a couple of his uh, books, <clears throat> relates the haunting story of a prostitute in the city of Chicago. <clears throat> this woman told her story to a man who spent his time working among the down and out. That man passed it on to Yancey. She told this man through her sobs and her tears that not only had she been selling her own body, but she had also been renting out her two-year-old daughter to men interested in kinky sex. She made more money renting out her daughter for an hour than she could make for an entire night. But now she could no longer bear to live with herself. Not knowing how to respond to her guilt and her grief, this man asked her if, if she ever thought about going to the church and asking for help. And her response was pure shock. Church, she said. Why would I ever go there? I, I'm already feeling terrible about myself. They would only make me feel worse. Now, Yancey points out here, I think, a disconnect that's obvious to most of us. You know, in the Bible, people like this woman seemed to run toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she was to see in Jesus a refuge, a place to run to. 
So why don't people like this run to the church? Why don't they run to the church? Now, if you think this is just a problem that began in Chicago in the 21st century, um, you'd be wrong, right? This goes all the way back to the Bible. If you recall, um, remember how, how Jesus' very own disciples, the people who walked and talked with him every day, remember how they scolded the parents who brought um, their children to Jesus and asked Jesus to bless them? The disciples keep them away. And, and remember how they tried to shoo away that crowd of 5,000 who were hungry and, and basically they wanted to say, look, solve your own problem. Feed your hunger on your own. And then there's that story of deep compassion for the blind man that you read about in John 9. They see this blind man on the road and they immediately go to Jesus and say, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? That's compassion. So you and I are, are part really of a long line of people who have, who have failed to live out the love and the compassion of, of Jesus. And friends, I think this is, this is what Paul is praying about in Ephesians chapter 3. He's praying about this disconnect between the love of Jesus Christ and the love of his followers, which is supposed to emulate the love of Christ. It's supposed to be that same love. And so Paul prays that somehow you and I, somehow the church of Christ will will grasp what Jesus' love is all about. And we're going to look at that prayer this morning, as I said. And first, we're going to look at what does it really mean to grasp? What's, what's Paul praying for here? What does it mean to grasp this? And then, what is it going to take for us to truly grasp this truth? And third, let's, let's look at this object of, of our grasping, what it is that we're trying to grab hold of. Let's just begin with, <clears throat> with what it means to grasp. The word grasp is actually a, a wrestling term. Um, it means to, to really to wrestle something, to capture something. It means to get a secure hold on it, right? To put it in a headlock. It means to jump on somebody, to overpower him, wrestle him to the ground, knock him out. Now, over time, we've had a number of, of young wrestlers around uh, the church, a lot of high school wrestlers. Um, Doug Bremer used to be a, a wrestler. Many of you know that. When he was a youth leader, he was sort of the, uh, he was sort of the bouncer of our, of our leader group. And, and every time, um, uh, every so often at fall retreat, one of these young high school wrestlers would try to challenge him to a match. I don't remember a challenger ever ending up on top. Even without his wrestling onesie, Doug had a way of pinning all comers. And, and I think that's our image of wrestling, right? And so it's a strange idea to think about us pinning the, the love of Jesus Christ to the mat, right? The love of God. And yet that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about taking this love of Christ and and meditating on it and pondering it to the point that you've got it in a headlock and, and you've got it secured until, until you really know what it's all about. There's no doubt there remaining. Okay, You're in lockstep with this love of Christ. 
there's a breakthrough in your mind and in your heart. You understand something at a much deeper level than you have in the past. See, that's what Paul is after here. He's, he's praying here that, that a belief that's up in our heads, that's in our minds, would actually gravitate from our heads down into our hearts and settle there. Okay? So that it's not just a concept, but it's something that's real to us. It's something we understand, and it's something that begins to work itself out in our lives. That's why Paul mentions here in our inner being and in our hearts, he wants Christ in our hearts, Christ's love in our inner being, the center of our being. See, these are truths, what he's praying for, these are truths that, that all believers already have in Jesus Christ. Paul's already told us in this letter that all believers have Jesus Christ living in them. And all believers have a love then for fellow believers, for people who also have Jesus Christ in them. Paul has told us that we all have the Holy Spirit in us. We receive the Holy Spirit when we first put our, our faith in Jesus Christ. But now, in this text, Paul prays that this is going to sink in in a new and vital way. Um, John Calvin even talks about this in the Institutes. He says this, he says, The Word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depth of the heart. Okay? It's not real faith until it moves from just the head to the heart. He goes on, he says, in such confirmation of the heart, God's power is much more clearly manifested to the extent that the heart's distrust is greater than the mind's blindness. What he's saying there is it takes more of God's power to plant this truth in our hearts, even in our heads. This is what Paul is praying for. It's going to move from one place to another. Um, and notice, Paul isn't just praying here for an experience that only happens to some people, that only happens in exceptional cases, all right? Um, Tim Keller tells a story of Blaise Pascal, who was a Christian believer and, and philosopher. When Pascal died, <clears throat> um, they found in the inner lining of his coat uh, that he had, had sewn the description of an event that he had gone through or an experience that he had had in his life one night. It read like this. It said, in the year 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about 10.30 to 12.30 at night, FIRE, in all caps. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certainty, certainty, feeling, period, joy, period, peace, period. Pascal had had an experience of the presence of God, the very presence of God. That experience 
can be unique. Not all of us are going to have that kind of experience of the fire, the presence of God. But what Paul is praying for here is that all of us in the church might experience the love of Christ in such a way that it impacts us totally and completely. That it impacts our attitudes, our feelings, our behaviors. That when we walk out of this building, we are different people and we remain different people. He's praying that we are so changed by the love of Christ that when little children come to us, we don't turn them away. That when, the blind, when we see the blind man on the road, we're concerned about him, not about who's to blame. And he's praying that when the prostitutes come to the church crying, they come to find people to cry with them and to help them. That's what Paul is praying for. He's praying that we would actually get it. That we would get the love of Christ. We just won't talk about it and understand it. And yes, I believe the love of Christ. But that it might actually become a part of us. It might sink in where we say, okay, I get it. Now, at first blush, you might think, well, this is a fairly easy thing to achieve, right? I mean, the actual distance between the head and the heart is probably 12 inches at the most. It doesn't have to go that far. And if that's what we think, we would be wrong. What Paul prays, look at what he prays in verse 16. He says this, I pray that God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit. With power. In other words, this transformation, this gravitation of truth into action, of truth to understanding, is going to take power. And it's not just any power, okay? Paul talks about this power quite often in his letter to the Ephesians. In, in chapter 1, he talks about the power of Christ, the power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to seat Him at the right hand, seat Him at His own right hand in heaven. That required the power of God for that to happen. In chapter 3, verse 7, he talks about this same resurrection of, po resurrection of power of Jesus Christ that gives Paul his own commission to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now imagine that task, right? Preaching to the Gentiles that they were actually a part of this, this Jewish religion, that they were a part of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 6, Paul again refers to this power of God that allows the church to actually engage in conflict with the evil powers of this world, the evil powers in the heavenly realms. Paul is constantly referring to this resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The church can do nothing without it, and apparently we cannot even get the love of Christ from our heads to our hearts without this power. And so Paul prays that through the Holy Spirit we might actually find the power that this understanding of the love of Christ may become real to us. Now why? Why, you say, 
would that kind of power be necessary? Two reasons, all right? First, because this seemingly small thing that happens in the interior of believers is not just a life changer. In other words, it not only changes us as individuals and how we act toward other people, but friends, if it actually does that, if it changes us as individuals, then it's a world changer, isn't it? If it actually changes the way that we live when we step outside these doors and the way that we live within these doors, the way that we look at each other, the way that we talk with each other, the way we confess our sins to one another, if we actually change, this world changes. And that's the second reason why we need the power of of God's resurrection or of Christ's resurrection, that is because the devil knows that. That if this truth actually sinks in, this is a world changer. And the devil is going to do anything he can to prevent that from happening. He knows what's at stake. And so what he wants is to keep those beliefs just sort of flitting around in our brains and never, never reaching our hearts. That's why Paul says and prays for the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in us to move these truths from one part of us to another. Which leads us to the final point, the object of our grasping. What is it that Paul actually wants us to grab hold of And what it is, is the four-dimensional love of Christ. And Paul prays that we will meditate on this love of Christ. And through that meditation and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to understand in deeper and deeper ways how great the love of Christ really is, what it's all about, and that might begin to work itself out in our hearts and in our hands and in our feet and in the things that we say. Paul is praying that you and I will actually meditate in our own prayers on the love of Christ and come to a deeper understanding of what it's all about. Augustine actually was the one who says, you know, if we're going to meditate on God, we can meditate on His greatness But there comes a point where we become disheartened by that because God is so great and so different from us that we can begin to think those thoughts that we'll never get there. And so what Augustine says is instead, we need to consider God's works. We need to meditate on the things that He does and then God will become familiar to us. Then God will be near. That's what Paul is saying. Think on the love of Jesus Christ. Think about His works. So let's do that a moment. Let's meditate on the love of Christ. Let's meditate on the length and the width of His love, the height and the depth of His love. And friends, it would take a lifetime to fully consider the love of Christ. And we don't have a lifetime this morning. But let's just consider for a few moments how Paul, just in this letter refers to these different dimensions of the love of Christ. For instance, he refers to the length of God's love. 
In chapter 1, he says that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. That's a long time ago. Before the creation of the world. In other words, even though God's chosen people were Jews and Jesus himself was a Jew, Paul is writing to a church that's full of Gentiles as well, full of the descendants of Adam. In fact, they're all the descendants of Adam. And he's telling them that not one of them is an afterthought in God's mind. Not one of them is an afterthought. Not one of you is an afterthought in God's mind. He's had you in His mind since the very, very beginning. From that very time that we fell with Adam into sin and fell out of fellowship with God, God has had us in His mind, a target for His love and for His redemption, and He has been faithful. He perseveres in that love. And through Jesus Christ, He has come to us. Not as an afterthought, but as someone he has loved since the beginning. Your picture has been on God's screensaver since the beginning of time. The love of Christ is long and the love of Christ is wide. Right? Chapter 2 of Ephesians is all about the wide love of Christ that not only embraces Jews, but embraces Gentiles as well. It embraces the Gentiles. It pulls them all together, Jews and Gentiles alike, where they become one temple, one temple where God Himself lives. Friends, I don't think we totally understand the gravity of this wide love of Christ, a a love that extends its arms across the world and pulls people to Himself. You know, Paul came from a world where the Jews held a deep, deep contempt for the Gentiles. Where the Jews said of the Gentiles that they were created to fuel the very fires of hell. If a Jewish boy were ever to marry a Gentile girl, his family would declare him dead. And not only that, they would go ahead and carry out his funeral. Okay? That's the kind of hatred that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. Is there anyone you hate that much? That hatred does not exist in Christ. It cannot exist in Christ. In Christ, these Jews and Gentiles, they longed to be in each other's company. In Christ, they sat in the same pew. In Christ, they sang from the same hymnal. In Christ, they celebrated together the destruction of their pride. In Christ, they discussed politics together and they learned from each other. They listened to each other. They laughed with each other. In Christ, the walls that stood between them could not withstand their love. Now, we know about this love of Christ, don't we? We know about it. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, 
black and white. It's in all the baptism texts. When we are baptized into Christ, all of those walls fall down. We know about this love, don't we? And we believe it's a good thing. But do we live it? Has this truth that we hold in our minds, has it made its way into our hearts? Has it found its way to our feet and our hands and our mouths? Have we said we forgive you? I confess my sin to you. If not, we need to meditate on Christ's love and we need to pray for the power of His Spirit. It's a love that's long and wide. It's also a love that's deep. How deep? Again, chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our sins. You can't get much worse than dead. Dead and buried. And standing on our grave, holding us underground, is our own treachery, our own sinful nature that keeps telling us all of our problems are because of somebody else. Holding us down is Satan and all the forces of evil. And yet the love of Jesus reaches down even there and finds us in that condition and takes hold of us when there is no way that we could take hold of Him. That's how deep is the love of Jesus Christ. It is able to reach down into our graves and pull us up. And the love of Christ is high. How high is it? Well, again, Paul says in chapter 2 that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. In other words, He has lifted us up to where Jesus reigns as King over all things. He has lifted us up so high that even the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, even those things cannot reach as high as we are because we are in the position of being sons and daughters of God. That is how high the love of Christ has lifted us up. Do you know this love? Fellow believers who have been a part of this church maybe your whole lives, do you know that kind of love? Do you know and live in the heights of that kind of dignity? When you're tempted to sin, does the first thing that comes to your mind, is it the fact that you live in the heights of heaven as a child of God? Or do you live in self-loathing? with a love of Christ that is sickly and weak and really can't change anyone or anything? Do you live in the heights of that dignity and do you see that potential in others around you? Because, friends, 
If the love of Christ to you is weak and lame, then it's no wonder that people are running from the church, away from the church, and not toward it. Paul prays that we will meditate on the love of Christ in all of its dimensions. And in this way, he prays that we'll experience the power of God to move that love from something in our heads to something we grasp with our hearts and therefore put into action on a regular basis. And that's when it becomes a life changer. That's when it becomes a world changer. You know, we talked about baptism. Let me close with a story of two baptisms. These come from Michael Linville uh, from his book, The Good News of North Haven. Linville was a pastor in a small church in North Dakota, and he tells about the first baptism of a, of a grandson of an elder, a silver-haired pillar of the church named Angus McDowell. And Angus approached uh, the pastor one morning after uh, a morning worship service, and he informed him that his son and daughter-in-law were coming into the area to celebrate Thanksgiving with the rest of the family. His son's name actually was Larry and Sherry, his wife. They lived in Spokane, Washington, but they would be coming to celebrate this family reunion. And, and by the way, they had just had a baby, and since they were going to be in town anyway, they wanted the pastor to baptize their, their new son, their baby boy. Well, the pastor took Angus aside <clears throat> and asked, Larry, or asked him about Larry and Sherry's own church life and their faith life. And he explained that really it would be best in the Presbyterian and in the, in the Reformed tradition if they were a part of a church of their own that they should be a part of a church family in Spokane, and that would be the best place to have this baby baptized. Well, it seemed that even though they'd been there for nine years, they'd not settled on, on a church yet that they liked, and so they just wanted the pastor here to do the baptism. And so again, the pastor tried communicating to them that, uh, you know, the parents' commitment to the faith was rather important for baptism because they would have to make some very sweeping promises and therefore they really ought to find a church in Spokane and do it there. That's what he thought he communicated, <clears throat> okay? But as he writes, Angus was a part of that dwindling breed of courtly, gentle, but inflexibly stiff patriarchs of the church. And so when the pastor left, Angus just called together a special meeting of all the other elders in the church and they voted to have the baptism 9-0. to zero. So on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, they baptized little Angus Larry. And in that congregation, there was, there was one little baptismal custom in which they would ask the question of the congregation, who stands with this child? And at that time, the whole extended family would stand up, Okay. They would rise for that part of the ceremony. So when the pastor asked, of course, grandparents stood up, Angus and his wife Minnie and Sherry's parents from up the road and a few cousins as well. That was one baptism. After that service, the pastor was headed back to his study and he noticed that there was a woman who was sort of lingering in the sanctuary. 
So he approached her, and her name was Mildred, and she said that was a really beautiful baptism this morning. And then she kind of paused, and then she said that her daughter Tina had just had a baby, and that, well, she thought that baby should probably be baptized too, right? But after another long pause, she went on to say that Tina's baby was born out of wedlock, that the father had run off to join the army, and it was a special circumstance. Well, the pastor said that he would bring it before the elders and they would talk about it. So at the elder meeting, there were a few questions as to why Tina was keeping the baby and a few as to whether they could be certain that she would stick to her commitments made in baptism. The pastor at that point feistily noted that at least Tina and the baby lived right in the town where the church was and the church could give them support. And he didn't have to say, and not in Spokane, because everybody knew it. But the real problem that everyone had in their minds was this picture in their heads of the question being asked and who stands with this child. And it would only be Mildred and Tina herself standing. But they approved the baptism and it would take place the Sunday before Christmas. Well, that Sunday the church was full, as you might imagine. The Sunday before Christmas often is. And there was an elder who was supposed to assist in the baptism and he had a little card that read, Tina Corey presents her son for baptism. And uh, down the aisle she came, nervously, briskly, smiling only at the pastor, shaking slightly with month-old Jimmy in her arms, a blue pacifier stuck in his mouth. The scene hurt, he said, all right, every bit as much as we all knew it would. So young this mother was and so alone. One could not help but remember another baby born long ago to a young and unwed mother in difficult circumstances. I read the opening part of the service, he writes, noting Mildred Corey sitting strangely out of place in the front pew. That's the grandmother. And then I asked, who stands with this child? I nodded at Mildred slightly to coax her up to her feet and she rose slowly looking to either side, and then returned my smile. My eyes went back to my service book. I was just about to ask Tina the parents' questions of commitment when I became aware of movement in the pews. Angus McDowell had stood up in his blue serge suit, Minnie beside him. And a couple of other elders stood up. Then the sixth grade Sunday school teacher stood up. And then a new young couple in church. And soon before my incredulous eyes, the whole church was standing up with little Jimmy. Tina was crying, of course, and Mildred Corey was holding onto the pew in front of her as though she was standing on the deck of a ship rolling in a great wind, which in a way she was. Every eye was on the child who was for a moment everybody's baby. The scripture reading that morning 
had been some verses from 1 John. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. In that baptism, those old words came alive. And those words travel from the head to the heart. And everybody saw it. And praise God. Let's bow in prayer. How great is the love of the Father that we have witnessed in Jesus Christ. That we have felt. That we have been the target of in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, in your power, we pray that you would move this belief, this understanding, this good news from our heads into our hearts that we may actually be filled with the love of Christ himself. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.